So you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 17 to 26 this morning. And so what do uh, suspense movies, sporting events, and the healing of a paralytic all have in common? Well, what they have in common is that they all create tension. You see, in each of these scenarios, there is some sort of problem or conflict or opposition and this conflict creates a level of uncertainty. You know, will the main character overcome the evil that they are facing? Will the team be able to hold off their hold on to their dwindling lead? Will the man who has been crippled most of his life get up and walk? And this uncertainty regarding the outcome, this is what creates tension. When I was more into sports than I am now, I remember there would be times when I was watching a basketball game or watching a hockey game, and I would be physically tense. I would be sweating, I'd be tapping my knee up and down, I'd be playing with my fingernails to deal with the tension and the uncertainty of the outcome. And so the reason that I, that I mention this type of tension is because I want you to understand that there is tension in our story this morning. You see, the passage that we're going to be looking at, there is, there is some serious conflict, there is some serious tension going on. And there's a few reasons for that tension. First, the people, the people in our story are going to create this tension. Now, so far in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has not had many challengers. I mean, he, he had the townsfolk in Nazareth uh, on his first sermon who didn't like him. He encountered a few demons here and there, but that was not really much of a match for Christ. But there's been no major theological opposition to his teaching that has occurred yet. Well, in our passage, that's going to change. Jesus is going to come across the people who end up being his biggest opposition to his ministry. That's the first reason there's tension, the, the people in our story. Second, there's tension because he's going to make claims. Jesus is going to make claims that no man has ever made before. Maybe men have made this claim, but none of them have ever backed it up. It's one of those moments when someone says something so radical, so novel, that everyone in the room goes silent and whispers to their neighbor, did he just say what I think he said? And then thirdly, there's tension because Jesus himself is going to put his own words to the test. Is Jesus all talk or is Jesus the real deal? Is Jesus like one of those boxers or UFC fighters who talks a big game, who, who does a bunch of smack talk, but then in the first round he's lying on the ground knocked out? Can Jesus actually do what he says he can do? And all of these things, the, the people, the claims, the challenge, they all create tension. And just like a big sports game or like an intense debate, we can feel the tension. It's like that saying, you can feel the tension in the room. Because ultimately, the outcome of this confrontation 
is going to have eternal impacts for all of the people sitting there in that room and for all of the people sitting here in this room today. And so with that, let me read our passage, Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judah and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst of before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them, seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. This is the word of the Lord. So there are three points to this morning's sermon. 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 The unexpected guests, that's the first point. The unprecedented claim and the undeniable authority. Three U's. Unexpected guest, unprecedented claim, and undeniable authority. And all of these things are really going to point to the one main message being communicated through this passage. And that message is this, that Jesus has authority to do what he came to do. Jesus has authority to do what he came to do. And we will see this as we move through our story. And so let's look at our first point here, the unexpected guests. And there's really two unexpected guests at Jesus' little teaching healing session here. The first of which is introduced for us in verse 17. On those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. This is the first time in Luke's gospel that we're introduced to the Pharisees. And they're going to play a big role in Jesus' ministry. In fact, they're going to be the biggest opposition along with the scribes and the teachers of the law. And so you might be wondering, who are the Pharisees? Maybe your thought is just, the Pharisees are the bad religious guys. Well, there's more to it than that. You see, uh, at the time... Of, of Jesus. It was called Second Temple Judaism. And during Second Temple Judaism, there was 
a bunch of sects that had formed in, in Judaism. So you had different groups like the Zealots, who were the more revolutionary uh, Jews, who really wanted a political kingdom established uh, and wanted to overthrow the, the Roman Empire and oppression of them. You had another group called the Sadducees, who we encounter uh, in the Bible. The Sadducees were a, a wealthier or, or um, more, more priestly line of Jews. They were very concerned with the temple. And that's why after the temple falls in AD 70, you don't have many Sadducees present anymore. Uh, they denied things like the resurrection and the existence of angelic spirits. And then you had uh, the Essence. Uh, and one of the main groups of that was the Qumran community, who you might have heard of before, where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they were very anti-establishment. They, they had thought that the whole um, temple sacrificial system had become corrupted because of its blending with, with, uh, with, the, with the Greeks. And so they withdrew from Judaism as a whole, and they formed these little communities uh, outside of society. And so you, you can see that you kind of have this, these different groups within the broad umbrella of Judaism. It's kind of like Christianity today. You know, we have different denominations, um, except it's, it's even more pronounced uh, in, uh, in, in Judaism. But the most common sect of all of these, and the most common one that Jesus interacted with, was that of the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees tended to be a more middle-class group of individuals, and they had a strong influence over the more common Jew. You know, they were the ones who were, were highly educated and held many of the teaching positions in the synagogues where, where people would go to meet on the regular. Uh, they had a lot of the, the schools, the religious schools. So in Acts, we read about uh, Galil, or G- Gamaliel, and uh, he is uh, a Pharisee who teaches one of these religious schools. Uh, they were um, often the scribes. When we read about the scribes or the teachers of the law, they would have been the Pharisees who, in, who interpreted and applied the law for the, people of the God, uh, for the people of God. And then one key thing that really marked them and that we see throughout the Gospels is that they were people who were very zealous for the law of Moses and their traditions surrounding it. They loved God's law. They loved the things they added to God's law. And it, and it became to the point that they were very strict legalists when it came to the law. And, and we see an example of this in Matthew 23, verse 23. You know, Jesus says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In other other words, what Jesus is saying here is he is rebuking them for being proud about their tithing of spices. In the Bible, you don't have to tithe on your spices. But the Pharisees said, they they had added this and said, we're going to tithe. And that's a sign of faithfulness to the Lord on our spices. But then, there's other things that are very clear, other principles that are very clear in God's law that they were neglecting. Like justice and and mercy uh, to the poor and oppressed. And so, broadly then, these, that is what the Pharisees are. You know, they're, they're a sect within Judaism that had great influence over, over the people. They were heavily involved with the people. 
And they were highly religious, highly theological, high view of God's law, but also highly opposed to, to Jesus. And so in our story then, we're introduced to these Pharisees, and a, and a delegation of them is sent out to go and inspect Jesus' teaching. You know, it says they came from every village in Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And so you can kind of imagine this. You know, they find out that Jesus is teaching in a certain uh, village, and they say, okay, we're going to go and we're going to uh, examine this man. We're going to see if he's uh, righteous. We're going to see if he's a truly a man of God. We're gonna, we, we know that he's not a Pharisee. We know he's not a zealot. We know he's not a Sadducee. But the people are being influenced by him. And we want to we keep an eye uh, on this Jesus guy from Nazareth. You know, is he a threat to us? Is he a threat to what we've established? Or maybe he could be a potential ally. And so that's creating some tension here in our story. These unexpected guests have arrived and we see that they, they sit down and they're now listening to Jesus and seeing what he is about to do. And then we get introduced now to our second set of guests. And we see them in verses 18 and 19. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And so we have here this scene. Jesus, he's teaching in someone's home and, and this place is packed out. You know, all the, all the chairs have been taken up inside. People are piling in around the doors. Those who can't see in through the doors are crowding in around the windows Jesus has sold out the building. But then all of a sudden, we see walking down the street, four guys. And these four guys are running a little behind. They're, they're late. And the reason that they're late is because we see with them that they are carrying a stretcher with a crippled friend lying on it. You see, they had heard about Jesus. They had heard that he has healed people and maybe just maybe, Jesus can heal their friend. But when they arrive there, there's a problem. There's no way of getting in the building. The place is too packed. No one's willing to make way for them and let them in. They try the front door, it's too full. They try the back door, it's too full. You know, he can't fit through one of these tiny windows on his stretcher. And so it looks like they had made the trek all the way down here for no reason. But instead of simply saying, well, we tried, so let's go home now. The crowd is too big. I guess it's not the Lord's will that our friend be, heal be healed. Now, what do they do? Well, they say, you know, all the entrances are blocked. I guess we're going to have to make our own. And so they climb up to the roof of this building and they start tearing it apart and you can imagine what the people inside are probably thinking. They can hear the sounds of them yanking off the, the tiles and the dirt, and they can feel it starting to drop on their shoulders as they're sitting there. You can picture the Pharisees looking up in disgust, cleaning off their clean and pure robes. They can start to hear voices. They, they can see the light, and all of a sudden, they look up, 
and being lowered down slowly from that roof comes a crippled man in a stretcher supported by four ropes. And he's slowly lowered down as his friends lean over the hole with their sweaty faces faces directing this man right in front of Jesus. And now one thing I know that I noticed when reading this passage is that I got to get me some friends like those guys. You know, or, or even better, I got to be a friend like those guys. And these guys are examples of, of what good friends look like. As a, a, a quick aside in our story, I want to I quickly look at what characterized these, these wonderful men and what we should strive to have characterize us. And first, look at, look at the love of these friends. You know, they loved their friends so much that they would do whatever it takes to get him to Jesus. Whatever it takes to get him to Jesus. You know, they, they saw him in his sad and pitiful condition and they were willing to sacrifice in order to change that. You know, they, they were willing to take the weird looks that were coming their way. They were willing to take the insults and judgments that were being thrown at them as they were yanking apart the roof. They were willing to pay physical money to fix the roof they had just destroyed in order to get their friend to Jesus. And it was because they loved him and they cared for him. And I think a question we got to ask ourselves is, how bad do you want to get your friends to Jesus? How bad do you want to get your friends to Jesus? If you are a Christian, you know that those in your life who don't know Jesus are headed for eternity in hell. And you know that getting them to Jesus is the only possible way that that can be changed. And so do you love them enough to do what it takes to, to, to get them there? To sacrifice for them? To risk looking like a fool in the eyes of the world or even in their eyes to bring them to Jesus? Now, true love is going to say, I don't care about those things. What I care about is your soul and your salvation and getting you to Jesus. That's the first thing that characterizes these friends. They, they love their friend so much they are going to get him to Jesus. A second characteristic of these friends is that they're men who persevere. It could have been very easy for them to say, all right guys, well we tried and it didn't work, let's call it a day. No. I mean, they, they knew that this man needed Jesus and getting turned down once, turned down twice, wasn't going to stop them. And the same is true for us. A, a little bit of opposition in this world shouldn't stop us. There are, there are things that are going to be hard in this world. There are going to be challenged. And if we stop sharing the gospel, stop living the gospel, stop holding true to the teachings of Scripture and keeping our convictions... And if we, if we all of a sudden stop when we face that opposition, do we really believe the truths that we say we believe? Do we really believe them? No, we, we persevere till the end. We, as Paul said, we, we keep fighting the good fight. We keep the faith. We, we, we run the race. We keep speaking truth even though it will cost us. It will cost us. We persevere just as these men did. 
And then lastly, we see that these men are, are men of great faith. They're men of great faith. They, they genuinely believe with all of their heart that the Lord Jesus can heal their friend. You know, they're, they're not saying in their minds, we're just going to do this so that we can appease Bill. And so that we can say to Bill, hey Bill, we tried to take you to Jesus and it didn't work. No, they, they actually believe that Jesus had the power to heal. They had faith in God. Now may the Lord give us all this kind of faith in all areas of our lives. You know, faith to believe in the power and the promises of God no matter the circumstances we find ourselves in. It doesn't mean that, that God is going to heal uh, every time. But we still have faith that God can heal every time. It reminds me of the, the men in Daniel 3. As they're standing before Nebuchadnezzar, they say to him, Our God will deliver us. But even if he do, our God can deliver us, our God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down and worship your idol. See, what they're saying is they have faith in God that he can deliver them. But even if God doesn't, it doesn't mean that, that God was unable to. God is able to, and we need to be the ones to have faith in God to do wondrous things. And now this faith of these men leads us then into our next uh, our second point of the sermon. So we had our unexpected guests. You have the Pharisees show up. You have these, this, this crippled man being brought in by his friends. And now this leads to the second point, the unprecedented claim. The unprecedented claim. Look at verses 20 and 21. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now a few things to notice here. See, the, the paralyzed man is lowered down from the roof in the presence of Jesus. And he very clearly has a need that he is hoping Jesus can meet. You, know, you, you can very, very clearly see that this man is paralyzed. And you can very clearly see that this is the reason this man is here. You know, there's great anticipation on the part of the man, hoping that Jesus is going to heal him. There's anticipation uh, by his friends. There's anticipation on behalf of the crowd who has maybe seen Jesus heal already. And yet, when Jesus sees the faith of this, of this man and of and the faith of his friends, he doesn't heal them right away. But rather he says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now why, why would Jesus say that? Why would he do this? Why would he, why would he not heal the man when very clearly that is the need that the man has come for? Well, I think for two reasons. First, Jesus says your sins are forgiven before healing him because he's, aggress- he's addressing here the greater need. The greater need. Yes, this man is crippled, maybe from birth or maybe from an accident that he has had in his life. The obvious reason that he and his friends have gone through such great lengths is to, is to, to, to get him there is because he is suffering. He is missing out on many of the joys of life because of his condition. To everyone in the room, that is this man's greatest need, to be healed um, of his paralysis. 
But Jesus sees that there is an even greater need. You see, this man, like every one of us here, is a sinner. And to be a, to be a sinner means a few things. First, it, it means that we are separated from God. See, God is holy and pure and righteous and good. And we as sinners are the exact opposite of that. Whatever you think of God being, think of you being the opposite. God is, is, is clean. God is, is pure. God is, is white and bright. And we are the opposite. We are dirty. We are unclean. We are, we are dark and we are unholy. And because of that, it creates this infinite chasm that can't be bridged between us and God. That's what it means to be, a, to be a sinner. Second, it means that we are guilty before God. See, every time we sin, every time we break any commandment of God, we become guilty before Him. We become responsible for the things that we have done, and we become accountable before God. It's just like our justice system here on earth. You break the law, you incur guilt. Just like there are punishments in our justice system for being guilty, there are punishments in God's. The third thing that being a sinner means is that you are under the condemnation of God. And what is, con- what, what is this condemnation? Well, it's death, both spiritual and physical. It's the wrath of God righteously poured out on sinners. And it's eternal separation from God and all that is good in hell for eternity. Second Thessalonians 1 verse 9 says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of God of his might see this is what it means this is this is the package that comes with being a sinner and so when you look at this crippled man and you see his needs on the one hand you have something very sad he can't walk he can't work he can't do many things but then on the other hand he is separated from god guilty before him and 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 eternally damned because of his sins. And so now you see how, how Jesus is meeting the greater need here. You know, more than he needs his spine to be healed, he needs his heart to be healed. More than he needs uh, back his life, he needs true eternal life. More than he needs his afflictions removed, he needs his guilt and condemnation removed. And, and there's application here for us, I think, First, you know, our mission as a church, as Christians, should be to always meet the greater need. Now, that doesn't mean that we, we neglect the, the lesser physical needs of the people. They're still real needs. It just means that we prioritize the spiritual need of sinners over anything else. You know, any, any humanitarian work should ultimately have as its goal the redemption of sinners, not just full bellies. You know, the redemption of sinners, not just clean water. You know, the greater need is that people need to know Jesus. People need their sins forgiven. And so that's the, that's the first reason why Jesus says, your sins are forgiven rather than healing the man right away. And the second reason is this. Because Jesus knows that the Pharisees are watching he says this first, 
Now, he makes an, an intentionally provocative statement. Jesus knows that this is going to provoke uh, problems with the Pharisees. And Jesus is, is making this statement partly to, to bring up this conversation with the Pharisees. He gets, them, he gets them rattled. They begin to whisper among themselves, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can, who can forgive sins but God alone? And the thing about the Pharisees here is, you know, they're actually right. They're right in this. You see, uh, it, 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 if when we sin, uh, it is God alone who forgives that sin. You know, what, sin is, is primarily an offense against God. And that's why it's God, who, God alone who forgives sins. When we sin, we are primarily offending God. That's why, why David in Psalm 51 says, Against you only have I sinned. He did sin against others, but, but the weight in which he had sinned against God totally uh, over, overcame that. You know, it's like if I were to steal something from Roland, and then I go and say, sorry, hey, Mac, I stole something from Roland. Mac would say, go to Roland and ask him for forgiveness. Why are you coming to me? It's the one who sinned against that gives out the forgiveness. And therefore, when we sin, we are sinning primarily against God alone, and God is the one who forgives. And God alone is the one who forgives. And so the Pharisees are right in saying this, in saying this to themselves. You know, who forgives sins but God alone? And they're also right that for Jesus to claim to be exercising an attribute or activity that belongs to God alone is blasphemy. Now, blasphemy simply means disrespecting or disgracing the person or name of God. And, and one way that that could be done, and the way that Jesus was primarily accused of it for, was by usurping the role of God and claiming authority, the authority of God for oneself. And this was a very serious sin to God. In, Le- in Leviticus 24, we, we read about the punishment that God gives for blasphemy. It says, take the blasphemer outside the camp. All those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head and the entire assembly is to stone them. And so, it is, so, so if it is true that Jesus here is blaspheming, which it, which it looks like he might be because he's claiming a prerogative of God alone, then what should happen to Jesus? He should be taken outside the camp and he should be stoned for his blasphemy. And so these men, these Pharisees, are appalled by what Jesus is saying. This is a very serious claim that he is making. But there's a problem with their reasoning. You see, Jesus agrees that only God can forgive sins. Jesus also agrees that if any man were to claim to forgive sins, that he would be blaspheming against God. But you see, Jesus is no mere man. You know, he is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. True God from true God, as the, as the Nicene Creed puts it. And because of that, he has every authority to forgive this man's sin or anyone's sin. And Jesus here is making an unprecedented claim that no man has ever been able to make and to back up. And this, this leaves the Pharisees with a really difficult decision. If Jesus is not God, he's blasphemed and deserves to die. But if Jesus is God, if he is the one who can forgive our sins, then what does that mean? 
that he deserves to be worshipped and followed with all that we have. And it's not just the Pharisees that need to make that decision. It's all of us here. You see, there's, there's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. Jesus is either a liar and that he's claiming to forgive sins when he actually can't, or he's a lunatic who for some reason thinks he's the Son of God, thinks he's the Son of Man, thinks he can forgive sins when he actually can't, or he is Lord. And because he is Lord, he demands our whole devotion and life. That comes with Jesus' unprecedented claim here. And so now we've heard the claim of Jesus. Uh, We've met our unexpected guests. But how do we know if it's actually true? I mean, does he have the authority to forgive sins? Or is he a blasphemer who has gone too far? And this leads to the third and final point of our sermon, the undeniable authority of Jesus. The undeniable authority of Jesus. Look at verses 22 to 25. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? What is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home. You see, ironically here, Jesus displays again another attribute of God. He's able to to think and perceive their hearts and to know what they're doing. He knows that they don't they don't believe him. And so he, he turns and he, and he looks at them and he asks them a question. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Now it's much more difficult to actually forgive sins. Remember, only God alone can do that. But to simply say to someone, your sins are forgiven is not very difficult to do. And there's no way that you can you can, that, that, that claim can be proven or disproven. If I say to you, your sins are forgiven, there's, there's no way until the end when you can actually determine whether that is true or not. But you know what can't be disproven? It's if this man, who is crippled, so crippled that they had to bring him in through the roof on a stretcher, gets up and walks. And so Jesus here is saying, you might doubt that I, for, I, I can forgive sins. But you can't doubt this. And he says these words to them, that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And to everyone's amazement, this crippled man stands up, he folds up his, his mat, and he walks. See, Jesus is not all talk. Jesus displays his undeniable authority to forgive any and all sin. If there is any question whether Jesus was a fraud, a liar, a charlatan, it's all put to rest 
There's no question that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God who can take away your sins. Now, earlier we talked about how all of us are sinners. All of us are separated from God. All of us are under the guilt and eternal condemnation of God. Well, this passage brings us so much joy because there is hope. Jesus can forgive you of your sins. No matter the sins that you have committed, no matter the things that you have done, no matter the things that you have thought, no matter the propensity of your heart, Jesus can forgive you of your sins. Jesus can change your heart. It reminds me of that old hymn. Would you be whiter, yes, brighter than snow? There's power in the blood. There's power in the blood. Sin stains are lost in its life-giving flow. There's wonderful power in the blood. See, Jesus will forgive any and all who come to Him. And just as this former paralytic and his friends came to Him in faith, forgiveness of sins was extended. And the same goes for us. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be forgiven. God will not hold those sins against you anymore. The wrath of God will no longer be upon you because it was taken upon the Son of God on that cross. And so to close, I'd mentioned earlier at the beginning of the sermon that that there's, there's tension in this story. And part of the tension is, are you going to believe Jesus? Are you going to be like the Pharisees and reject Jesus? Are you going to come to him for forgiveness of sins? Are you going to stay and remain in your sins because you do not want to submit to him as Lord of your life? Jesus is is being opposed by the powerful and influential religious leaders of his day, and that creates tension. Jesus making claims that no other person has made before, and that creates tension. Jesus puts his claims to the test and shows that he's no liar or blasphemer, but the Son of Man. And then we see in verses 25 and 26 that because Jesus has proven true, if you have been purchased by the blood of Christ, forgiven of your sins, all of that tension is completely wiped away. There's now peace between God and man because of Jesus. Look at verses 25 and 26. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then that is what Jesus has done for you. He's forgiven you of your sins, and not only that, but he says to you the same thing he says here. Get up and walk. Get up and walk. Jesus says, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. And that's what this man is experiencing. Imagine the joy this man felt as he, as he danced home that very first day. You know, it says that, that he went home glorifying God. He had been healed, but more than that, he had been made new. His sins had been forgiven, and he was free from guilt and free from shame. And the same is true for us. What joy we can have knowing our sins have been washed away. 
What joy we can have knowing that our punishment has been paid. What joy we can know that God has come and He has met the greatest need that we all had. And so if you walk away with something this morning, if you're a Christian, I want you to walk away with this. Have joy in the Lord. The Lord has done so much for you. Have have gratitude in the Lord. Leave here joyful and glorifying God for all of His goodness to you. Let us be like this man who dances home in the glories of the Lord, enjoying His goodness, enjoying His kindness, giving Him the praise that He rightfully deserves with all of our lives. Let me pray.